0: Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Political Rewind. I'm Greg Bluestein, senior political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, filling in for the great Bill Nygut. Today, after months of meetings, the January 6th committee is releasing its final report recommending that former President Trump be charged for his interference in the 2020 presidential election. On Monday, the panel released an executive summary of, of their findings that again pulled the peach state to the center of the political universe. Here to unpack it all with me is a great panel, starting with Matt Brown, democracy reporter at the Washington Post. Matt, I love that title. Matt, the Georgia runoffs have been audited, but today is still a huge day for democracy.
2: Right, absolutely. This is this is the aftermath that we've been seeing for now basically two years in Georgia's elections of a lot of the discussion around not just how was this administered, but but what efforts were there actually to try and influence the the whole situation, especially in the 2020 election with with Trump's interference as the January 6th Committee's report that we're going to see today um, has extensively documented.
0: And we have Clark Atlanta University Professor Tammy Greer. Good morning, Thanks. Tammy. Are you and your triplets ready for Christmas?
3: Yes, we are very ready for
0: Christmas. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we have another professor on the line, Emory University's Fred Smith. How are you feeling now that the semester is over and maybe those papers have been graded? Uh,
1: paper's definitely not great, but, uh, but it's a wonderful end to the semester and a, and a beautiful holiday season.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And last but not least, we have former State Representative Ed Lindsay on. Ed, I know a lot of your former colleagues are gearing up for the session that is beginning in just a few weeks.
4: It it, it should be an interesting session with a lot of new players um, stepping up.
0: You will see, and we'll talk more about that for for sure on the show in the next coming weeks. Let's dive right into the January 6th committee, uh, which held its last hearing Monday and will release its final report later today. During the hearing, the lawmakers used several Georgia incidents to support the recommendation to the Justice Department to charge former President Trump Uh, They cited Trump's infamous call, the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. They also made mention of a Fulton County election worker who is repeatedly harassed by uh, pro-Trump election deniers. Matt, you watched the whole hearing. Uh, what, What stuck out to you the most during the proceedings?
2: Well, I think that the proceedings really did show that, that over the course of the past really two years of this investigation, you've seen this committee not just pursue a fact-finding process here, but really be able to create an almost prosecutorial record of what were the infractions the that they believe that Trump committed through the investigation. And, and that really showed out here at the conclusion where, though a referral of criminal charges doesn't actually hold any legal weight in court, it, it sets an incredible precedent that Congress, that this congressional committee was was. Willing to take that um, unprecedented step of recommending charges against the former president, and which really underscores, in their view, how consequential and, and dangerous the actions that they believe Trump took um, were for the country and the, our very social fabric.
0: And I've been struck too by the reaction from Republicans. Um, you know, many have dismissed the hearings as a sideshow, but there are also key Republican leaders who are not rushing to defend Donald Trump.
4: No, they're not. Uh, you know, and I still remember uh, uh, Senator Bill Cassidy from Louisiana when asked why he voted to um, to convict uh, uh, President Trump uh, in the impeachment trial of the u.S. Senate. His response was, "Because he was guilty." Um, and, and I think that there are a number of folks who are sort of stepping back and wanting to see what happens here as the matter is turned over to uh, To Jack Smith and the federal prosecutors in, in the special prosecution office and and we'll have to see where it goes from there more importantly as, as was pointed out a moment ago uh, to, the, um, to the to the referral or to the recommendation uh, to the justice Department is the treasure trove of documents and depositions uh, that are being turned over uh, to the prosecutors. Uh, That will go a long way to speeding up any decision as to whether or not to actually move forward with prosecution against either President Trump or any of the other individuals who've been cited by the uh, January 6th committee.
0: Professor Smith, I want to bring you in here uh, as a a professor of law. Um, You know, all these documents that uh, Lindsay's talking about. Um, that are going to be you know molded over by not just Justice Department investigators, but I'm sure Fulton county investigators here in Georgia. um th- this sort of looms as a cloud over President Trump's former president Trump's
1: comeback attempt. that seems right. Uh, there's this way in which um the delay in some ways perhaps uh, was designed to aid the former president um, to kind of push it push some of this past um it's it, it kind of delay, delay, delay. Um, and this is true with respect to the tax returns, even more so, but delay, delay, delay. Um, but th- the other uh, outcome is that we're still talking about January 6th, uh, even as the president is attempting to launch uh, his comeback. Um, and so that's you know, maybe one of the uh, unintended consequences of
4: some of the attempts at delay. If, if that may, Greg, sort of throw something yeah. else in here um, regarding. The fact that we have two tracks going on here uh, right now—we've got a, a track on the federal side with uh, with Jack Smith, uh, special prosecutor—and we've got the Georgia track going. And and I and I have to say this as a as a resident of the city of Atlanta and Fulton County, I must admit I'm kind of questioning. And I'd like to hear uh, Professor Smith's thoughts on this. Why not? From Fannie Willis, the, 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 the Fulton County Prosecutor's standpoint, why not simply turn over her findings to to Jack Smith, and return focus on crimes committed here in in Fulton County? You know, we still have have a crime rate that is higher than it than, than historically it, it should be. Um, you know, it, it is going down slightly, but it's still higher than it should be. And there's a lot of folks in Fulton County that would like to see Fannie Willis focus her attention on that. And perhaps turn over any uh investigation that she has with the special grand jury over to someone like Jack Smith and let him handle it. I kinda would like to get the thoughts of Professor Smith on that. Sure,
1: right. So in our system, as you know, uh right, we have dual sovereigns and there's sometimes where someone might commit a state crime and also commit uh a federal crime. So, you know, um and, and sometimes it may be a federal official who commits a a a, a state crime. So imagine yeah. if if a president were to shoot someone on Peachtree Street, um, yeah, I think we would, we would all agree, right, that we would want uh, uh, the local prosecutors um, in, involved in that. All right, this one is, a, is messier because the nature of the conspiracy is that some of it was in D.C. and some of it was here and yeah. some of it was was elsewhere. Um, you know, but I'm 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 comfortable with the with both dual sovereigns doing their due part, uh, and, but, I, but I do think all of that has to be taken into consideration. If she thinks that, um, that, that there's a sufficient amount of work happening at the federal level, um, that she shouldn't that, – that I can see that playing a role into whether or not she chooses to prosecute.
4: Yeah, I guess my, my, my thought is, is simply that you know, there's only a limited amount of bandwidth any prosecutor has. And sometimes, sure. you know, would you have another prosecution, whether another investigation going on, albeit at another level of the federal level, that uh, that given your, your limited bandwidth and given your other concerns in your community, whether it would be better for Fannie Wills to turn over this over to Jack Smith and let him make uh, make the call on whether to prosecute and, and then whether and then to actually do the prosecution.
0: Sure. And this is the debate. This epitomizes the debate going on in Fulton County um, with, you know, there's some critics, even even some people who think that Donald Trump should be charged criminally, who say that it's, uh, you know, it's a strain on limited resources at Fulton County at a time when uh, there is rising crime. And there's others that say, hey, Fulton County is the perfect venue for this because this is where uh, Donald Trump. Um, you know, made that infamous phone call to Brad Raffensperger. I know one of the first things that Fonnie Willis, the district attorney of Fulton County, did was look up Brad Raffensperger's address after she saw that report in the AJC and the Washington Post about that phone call uh, and say, oh, he lives in North Fulton County. So that that is that is my territory. Um, Professor Greer, our colleague at the Atlanta Journal of Constitution, Tamar Hallerman, reported that the, f- the grand jury is now starting to work on its final report in Fulton County, The special grand jury, could be issued within weeks. And as we just talked about, it's a delicate balancing act what What are you watching for?
3: um I'm watching for um to see what charges come out of it. I'm also just as a political head looking at the responses from different politicians um and elected officials to see how they are responding to um to not only the january sixth report, the upcoming um report um and potential charges from Fulton County because it appears to me that uh the there's a continued drumbeat of no one is above the law uh, except for um except for when it will hurt the country right except for when it will do damage politically except for when it looks politically motivated um and so it's very curious to me uh about you know what is actually um an offense that that an elected official can commit Um, and and not to be held accountable, and then what is the outcome if someone who is at the highest level of office in the United States who commits, you know, offenses is not charged and or tried for those offenses, then what does that say um, to the person who's on the street who's speeding? Um, Then we're going to give that person consequences, yet when it comes to um, the foundation of this republic, you know, we step away from it. We shy away from it. It's very
0: curious, Professor Smith. You know, the, the, what we learned at the at the final committee hearing on Monday was that the members of the committee were convinced there's enough evidence to charge Trump with four different accounts: obstruction of an official pr- proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the U.S., conspiracy to make to, conspiracy to make a false statement, and conspiracy to defraud the U.S. by assisting, aiding, or comforting those involved in an insurrection. Now, that doesn't mean Trump will be charged. Again, he has no power over what the Justice Department does, but it's a pretty strong statement from a bipartisan committee.
1: It is. right. The thing to remember about a conspiracy um, is that it's really, so much of it is about the agreement um, and about taking actions toward fulfilling that particular agreement. Um, and so uh, one doesn't necessarily need to demonstrate uh, in a, one way or another, whether or not like he was the you know the, the final cause of the insurrection, et cetera. Um, the question is really um, was he involved in uh, in the agreement to uh, to obstruct um, and um, in the agreement to um, attempt to uh, interfere with the election in these various ways. Um, you know, and that's what the Department of Justice is going to have to mull over as they review these documents.
0: And Matt, there's more bad news for former President Trump because the Democratic-led House Ways and Means Committee is set to release Trump's taxes in the coming days, uh, as soon as as soon as this week. Um, you know, this is another issue that the Democrats are trying to push forward before Republicans take control of the U.S. House in a few weeks.
2: Yeah, and this is one that also Democrats have been very interested in, obviously since Trump was in office. And and we already know, for instance, that they that the Democratic Ways and Means Committee has has said that, for instance, the IRS had not properly audited Trump's tax returns several times over the past um, several years um, while he was in office, for instance. And are going to be very interested in making sure that those basic facts are out there before Democrats lose control of the committee and lose access to this legal fight that they've been having for for years with Trump now over whether or not there was proper public interest in actually being able to see what were Trump's tax returns to probe you know, potential conflicts of interest is one thing that the committee was super interested in. So we're going to have access to them soon, and it's going to be really interesting to to see what the public debate is going to be now that we have this white whale that everyone's been talking about for years now.
0: Yeah, it's been a years-long legal battle just to get this far. I want to shift back to, to Fulton County, Ed. Um, and you know the 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 tension you mentioned earlier with the Fulton County DA Fani Willis, um, you know the resources she's using, um, and the, the 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 now still unsolved question of whether or not uh, she'll move forward with charges because we know that the special grand jury is finalizing its report. We know that it's just issuing a recommendation. It doesn't have the final say. Fani Willis does. But this will shift the center of the, the political attention back to Georgia as well if she decides to go forward with charges against President Trump while he's waging a comeback
4: attempt. Well, first off, j- just one extra step that, that's involved in here, and, and I think uh, Professor Smith might want to make sure that I get my facts straight. The the the, the, the special grand jury issues a report, it's not solely Fannie Wilson's call at that point. Fannie Wills then goes back to a regular grand jury and makes a recommendation as to charges, and then it's up to the grand jury as to whether or not to move forward. That's a more likely scenario. Uh, that's my understanding. Professor Smith, tell me if I'm wrong about that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but you know that's my recollection. Uh, so so we do have that that added step. Um, and and like I said, it, it, the question is, um, you know, what is Fannie Willis going to do at this point? Is she going to take the lead, and is she going to turn it over? After the special grand jury does its job and t- takes it to the, a regular grand jury to decide what and who to, to indict, whether or not she's going to continue forward on this track or turn it, turn what she's uh, obtained and the information she's gotten. Because she's also done a, a great amount of investigation and turn that over to the special prosecutor, uh, Jack Smith, on the federal level and let him run with it. Um you know, um, it's it's going to be interesting to see what she decides to do over the next three or four months.
0: And Professor Greer, we reporters, we like to do these end of the year stories are the biggest questions for the coming year. And in our story in the AJC, my biggest question is whether or not Fonnie Willis does go forward with these with these, uh, you know, seeking grand jury charges against Donald Trump, because this seems like it's going to just further magnify uh, not only Donald Trump's efforts to, to overturn the 2020 election here in Georgia, but also those of his allies in Georgia and, and outside of Georgia.
3: Right. And it's interesting um, because there's this dichotomy that we have. is either if the former president is charged, then, you know, his allies will feel emboldened to push back. If he is not um, indicted uh, or charged with any of these offenses, then again, what does that say about the rule of law and which laws do we actually want to to prosecute? Um, and then it goes to the notion that uh, white collar crime is not really a crime um, because it's a victimless crime. Um, and then who commits those crimes? And then, you know, what is the ripple effect of it in our justice system? Um, I think that in order for us to be unbiased and fair in what we do, you know, to, to say, you know, if it's, on the books, and this person is found to have elements of this offense, then you should move forward because that's what you would do in any other instance, regardless of the status and stature of that individual.
1: Sure. Uh, So on that point, right, um, you know, if someone were to commit uh, a drug offense that violated federal law and also violated state law, Um, It's not uncommon for both the feds and uh, state officials to to get involved. Um, I do want to add one additional kind of point here, which is that part of what the Department of Justice is inevitably thinking about um, is whether or not uh, it wants to create a a scenario where it becomes a political arm of various political parties moving forward. So it's not just about this case. um, It's about, whether or not the department will become political and what, what door does this open? Uh, and, uh, you know, and I, I think that's a, that's a, that's a real and, uh, and difficult question that does make this, um, in some ways different uh, than, uh, than most cases. It doesn't mean that anyone is above the law, but, uh, but surely that's something that has to go into, uh, into the calculus.
2: Matt. Well, yeah. And on that point, I think that it's also important to note that even within the you know practical realities of what should Fannie Willis be putting her energy into or what are the political headwinds that are facing the DOJ, there are questions here. Just about what are the actual facts that all of these forces, all these different prosecutors know? We we know that there was a lot of deliberation between reasonable people on the Jan 6 committee, for instance, over whether or not to bring charges on not just Trump, but you know certain people in his orbit, certain other members of Congress. There there was there was considerable debate about that, and you have to imagine that a lot of that debate is also going on inside the Fulton County District Attorney's office and the DOJ over whether or not information that may not be publicly available right now that they might have that we don't know about yet, on what potential crimes could have been committed on the state level or the federal level, and then also just reasonably, well, who can we actually bring a case against? I, I think it would be, it's going to be really interesting to look at any discrepancies between the charges that the DOJ might bring and the charges that, that Fannie Willis might bring, just because it would show, for instance, who what they what case they think that they can bring against these individuals, but then also, more interestingly, what evidence that they might have. Because as we know, while these organizations are, are all communicating and the report that's going to come out today is going to be pretty expansive, they might all still have different information in their little silos and might not necessarily have, um, might come up with different cases as a result.
0: Ed, you know, Matt hit the nail on the head. This is why the Fulton County Special Grand Jury investigation their their report will be so fascinating and not, not just whether or not they you know recommend charges or not but we've seen the january 6th committee in full display put out its findings but the special grand jury the fulton county special grand jury's proceedings have been behind closed doors and you know we know they've uh, governor kemp secretary of state brad Raffensperger, lieutenant governor jeff duncan other state officials have gone forward as well as a number of trump allies despite their efforts to fight their subpoenas we don't know what they've said. You know, very little has leaked out of that special grand jury beyond, you know, who's testifying, but really what they're saying has not leaked out. And that's why this report can be so it can shed some new light on Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the twenty twenty election, Ed.
4: What well, is going to be fascinating for, for all the reasons you just said, it's it's sort of been locked away. Uh, you know, and, and now the, the door will be opened. Once the um, once the grand jury uh, comes forward, um, I, I, I'm not really expecting to see a lot of new revelations, given the, the fact that the January 6th committee uh, has, uh, in fact, you know, done its investigation. That's been very public. They've been very thorough. Uh, I can't even remember how many public hearings they've had. What's about six or seven? Uh, so I, I'm, I'm going to be a bit surprised. If there's going to be that much new information that comes out from the grand jury report that we haven't already seen, but you know who knows, uh, that's why uh, that's why we'll all be turning the pages whenever it gets released.
0: Well, we need to hit our first break here. Stay with us, though. We'll be right back with more Political Rewind.
4: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today.
0: And we're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Greg Bluestein, senior political reporter for the AJC, filling in for the great Bill Nygut on this penultimate episode of Political Rewind of the Year. Just a quick programming note, the team's last live show will be tomorrow. And you can sign up for a special best of edition of the Georgia Today Politics Newsletter at gpb.org slash newsletters. That's gpb.org slash newsletters. Okay. Back to our terrific panel today, Professors Tammy Greer and Fred Smith, Washington Washington Post reporter Matt Brown, and former state representative Ed Lindsey. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, the Georgia runoffs have been audited. The midterms are behind us, but candidates are taking a look back, and we're speaking specifically about Senator Raphael Warnock, who made his first TV appearance since winning the midterms on CBS Mornings this week, talked about Joe Biden running again, talked about uh, Brad Raffensperger's op-ed calling him an election denier, and he talked about rumors of him running for president in 2024. Let's listen to some audio. Is voter
3: suppression still an issue, though, in
0: Georgia? Oh, absolutely. We
3: we should some not... Some people could say, look, he won. That's no right?
0: longer
4: an argument. We should not assume that because I won that voter suppression is not an issue in Georgia. In fact, I had to sue the state of Georgia so that we could get Saturday voting. They, they shortened the runoff. Uh, and then they said the Saturday after a holiday, which was Thanksgiving, and another holiday, by the way, that uh, honored Confederate, uh, Confederate General uh, Lee, mm-hmm. they said we couldn't, have, we couldn't have Saturday voting. So I had to sue them. Uh, they appealed. It took two additional appeals to secure Saturday voting. And then the people of Georgia showed up. They built a, a, a multiracial coalition of conscience. So work to be to the done the there. Senate. Matt, I want to
0: bring you in for this question first because you've done such extensive reporting on it, but this was something that came up time and time again on the campaign trail. Um, Democrats talked about obstacles at the ballot box imposed by SB202, the election law passed in 2021, as well as other um, restrictions. Republicans pointed to record midterm. Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger in particular, in his Wall Street Journal op-ed called Senator Warnock, an election denier, for talking about um, some of those, those issues that he had brought up so often on the campaign trail.
2: Yeah, and this, this is still one of the defining debates of Georgia politics and, and has been for obviously a very long time, questions over access to the ballot and whatnot. Um, and surprise, it's complicated. There, there's a lot of factors here that, that really influence basically how people um, are both engaged in the process, what information they have in the process and what the the basic policies are, not just at the state level but also the county level for for how they're for what that define what their election experience is going to be. And I think that a lot of times you can have you know sometimes reasonable, sometimes unreasonable debates over, for instance, why are there long lines in a lot of counties all around the state why what are the policies that are actually making it um, easier or harder to register to vote, for instance. When do people have access to the ballot? And I think that the discourse over the past couple of years in Georgia, especially around the 2021 election law, have really centered on what is not just the actual practical effect of these things in a newly minted battleground where a lot of people are super politically engaged and paying attention to the news, but also questions over what was the intent of certain laws? What is the practical effect on the margins? Because, I mean, as we saw in just the runoff, these are very, very tightly contested elections here where every single vote matters. So those are the questions that I think has made this political discourse so heightened and so intense here in Georgia, even if you know the outside effect of certain policies may not actually be what some people have, what some folks have said, or they might actually um, be defined at the county level or the state level, and people might not be thinking necessarily about where the actual impact is.
0: And a quick follow-up, Matt, I, I know that we're looking at this next legislative session uh, to do more election law changes about the future of runoffs in Georgia, about whether or not to to move the presidential primary earlier in the 2024 calendar do you think we could also see new efforts to tinker with other parts of the election law guiding early voting guiding access to ballot drop boxes other issues
2: yeah i think that just looking at the the state of the general assembly at the moment and then also um comments made by secretary Rapidsberger. it's it's very clear there's a lot of interest in reforming um, a lot of the processes, making things logistically easier for you know election workers, for instance, just to be able to do their jobs, like juggling an audit at the same time you're trying to do a runoff is something that a lot of folks in Georgia thought were was kind of crazy that we just recently did. I also think that there is obviously still a lot of interest in parts of the legislature to make voting as um secure and or restrictive as as um, possible. And obviously, there's going to be a lot of input from Democrats and voting rights groups um, pushing in the opposite direction. So I don't think we're done with voting in this next legislative session for, for an, or for the near future, frankly.
0: And I want to get your take on that. Do you think Republicans will revisit voting laws beyond, you know, the the fate of runoffs and and presidential primary talk, as well as, you know, does, does Brad Raffensperger have a point in your view about calling out Senator Warnock, do you, do you think Republicans, you know, largely agree with Brad Raffensperger on that point, or or did he go too far? Uh,
4: to call him an election denier may be a bit strong. Um, for the same reason that I think that uh, uh, Senator Warnock uh, discussing uh, uh, the concerns regarding suppression may be a bit strong. I do I do you know keep in mind that I also wear the hat of serving on the state election board. And we receive an awful lot of information on both sides and accusations on both sides. Uh, You know, there's one side that wants to argue about voter fraud all the time. The other side wants to argue about voter suppression all the time. Um, and, And what I try to tell people is I try to caution them against that kind of rhetoric on both ends for this simple reason. A lot of election law changes uh, take place in the middle. And when you start accusing one side of fraud and the other side of suppression, it's awfully hard for folks to come into the middle and try to figure out exactly what works. Um, You know, uh, we do have a system here that's still uh, in Georgia that makes it easier for folks to vote in Georgia than in many, if not most other states. Into, including making it easy to, to register to vote than, than in a lot of other states. We have a system that is, that is relatively clean. Uh, yes, um, missteps happen, and yes, there is a small amount of fraud that sometimes takes place, but it's incremental in nature and has never been shown to be uh, determinative in terms of an election uh, on a statewide level. And so what I try to tell people is that, you know, try, try to cut down a lot on the rhetoric, uh, because we, we do need to make some tinkering. We do need to make some changes. Uh, but, you know, Senator Warnock had an excellent point. I don't think many people seriously thought that uh, the election law changes that took place over the last few years would impact Saturday voting. But we want Saturday voting. I think we need Saturday voting. I expect that to be clarified in the law. So that Saturday voting will not be an issue that goes to the courts again. There are other things that need to be done. As we shorten, for instance, the time period in a runoff uh, for people to vote, including to early vote, you need to have more early voting places for people to vote. Uh, You know, I found it fascinating once again in my area of Atlanta, where, you know, early voting, people were waiting for an hour or two hours. On the day of voting, I walked in and out in five minutes. Uh, so we we need to, as people want to do early voting more, if you're going to shorten the time period, you need to open up more early voting stations. So these are sort of practical things that we need to do in order to make sure that people can have reasonable access to the ballots. And when we have this harsh rhetoric on both ends of the political spectrum, it just makes it harder uh, for us to do so. Now, in terms of practical, getting back to your, your original question, yes, I do expect uh, there to be changes in the election law. Those generally take place an odd number of years because you want to give election officials a year and a half to two years to get ready for the next election.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: What takes place? I do expect there to be at least some concerns or some thoughts on how to go down the road when it comes to runoffs. Uh, perhaps, you know, there was a bill last year that would allow, for instance, municipalities uh, to go to uh, right choice voting rather than uh, uh, rather than runoffs. That might be a good experiment for us to try on the local level before we then go to the full state level to do so, but there are other things that need to be done as well, just sort of practical things because we want people to be able to 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 have access to the ballot um, and you know we need folks to come together, so there's a lot of tinkering that I expect to take place along the lines of what I said, hopefully uh some of the harsher uh, language on both sides will be subsided and the folks of goodwill will come together.
0: We'll see about that one. Professor Greer, I want to get back to something that Ed said earlier in his comments about how um, the Saturday voting restrictions were, were something of an unintended consequence of those changes. Because I remember covering the, the, the Senate Bill uh, 202 last year, and it rarely, I don't remember, uh, Saturday voting concerns doing a runoff ever coming up. It might have, but it was not one of the main issues. But we saw it take a magnified effect doing this runoff, especially after Republican officials uh, tried to block Saturday voting in court. And there were other voices in the GOP, you know, kind of echoing what, what Ed Lindsey just said, which was Republicans shouldn't try to fight it. They should try to take advantage of it. They should try to yeah. encourage rural red counties to also open yeah. um saturday voting and encouraged their supporters to get out the polls and that was something that seemed to energize democratic voters at really just the right time for for senator warnock's campaign
3: right um so two things uh, or probably multiple i concur with ed because um as a public policy matter you know if when you're changing a policy it In order for us to understand where the blind spots are, you implement it, right? Having policy on paper, it looks clean uh, with no human interaction uh, with the words on the page. So you really aren't sure as to the impact until it actually occurred. Um, And so perhaps, you know, not really focusing on the calendar and the Saturday before the holiday, which happened to be, you know, After Thanksgiving, when you shorten the runoff time, you know, things happen. So there can be an adjustment to that. I also agree with Ed on the rhetoric because the rhetoric um, on both sides, then uh, particularly from the Democratic side, um, you dissuade voters from participating because if the, the discussion is constantly negative about what you cannot do in terms of voting, then it creates a psychological, political psychological message that, you know, don't don't even try because it's not worth it. Um, and I would, um, you know, as a political scientist interested in civic participation, um, you know, our runoff had a little over 50 percent. Of participation the general election itself had about 57 percent participation perhaps the energy should be focused on increasing voter participation rather than these wonky arguments um, where people stay in their boxes and and will repeat the same line regardless of what policy or what law that comes out um, that may or may not be in favor of those particular sides
4: if I can add something real quick, Greg oh, yeah, to this, please. is
3: is that you know, this is an argument like
4: I said, beyond the fact that, that as a as a as a democratic republic we want everybody to vote. From a from a from a politics standpoint, you know, uh, this kind of rhetoric, sort of echoing what, what the professor was saying, damaged very badly Republicans uh, uh in the runoff election when A lot of Republicans, because of rhetoric they've heard in the past regarding disparaging uh, mail-in voting and early voting, uh, as a result, um, you know, Democrats uh, far outpaced Republicans in early voting, uh, you know, and and, and forced a lot of Republican consultants to sort of channel all their voters or most of their voters into same uh, election day voting when some people simply can't vote. So this sort of rhetoric, I'm sort of echoing what the professor said, damages uh, people on both sides of the political spectrum uh, when we should simply be trying to say, okay, here are the rules, folks. Let's figure out a way to get you to the ballot and and vote as quickly and as easily as possible. Professor Smith? Yeah, so I
1: want to echo this. (laughs) Um, I know that makes for a more boring show, but on the the rhetoric uh, front, especially on some of the really Early rhetoric about the new voting law, um, so not even the, really so much the voter suppression language, but some of the really early kind of Jim Crow 2.0 language, et cetera, um, was uh, was was strong. And then I think the uh, accusing Reverend Warnock of being an election denier is is, uh, is it's, it's strong, maybe not on that uh, register, but also strong. Um, now, what I, I, I do want to say though that there's this way in which. People do sometimes say, "Well, look, people voted, uh, so nothing to see here, right?" Um, and I think for the folks who filed successful lawsuits on exact exact match, for example, a few years ago, uh, or uh, or who sued for Saturday voting and so forth, they're, they're like, "Wait, wait, wait! <laughs> Don't forget that part of the story as we think about uh, what what happened." Um, and I think the thing about Saturday voting in particular is that, unlike some of the conversations, say, like, 20 years ago around voter ID, um, where you know where there's a there's a, a credible reason for why you want someone to have uh, a photo ID, and, and so you kind of have a, a moral high ground there. Um, that that moral high ground doesn't exist when when someone's trying to stop people from being able to vote. Uh, on uh, on Saturday. Um, and so, you know, I I think that's uh, an important part of how we, as we think about this story and how this unfolded, um, I think we want to remember that. And one final thing is, um, in this election, this last round, it was because, in part perhaps because the period was so short, um, a lot of folks did not get their mail-in ballots. And so when, when, uh, when the legislature returns, um, as they're investigating what happened and what changes they want to make, Um, you know, I I think that that's, that I want, I think they want to get a better handle um, on that part of it. And maybe that part is a little personal to me because (laughs) I didn't get my mail in ballot. My husband didn't get his (laughs) mail in ballot. Uh, And, and, you know, for some people, if they're, you know, off at college and so forth, like buying a plane ticket and flying back to vote is just not feasible. Uh, And so even if the language of voter suppression uh, may scare people off from this conversation in ways that aren't helpful, um, I hope that that doesn't scare us off from the, the, the conversation about how do we, what what went right, what went wrong, and how do we make it easier for as many Georgians to vote as possible.
4: And, and, and that's why to I to get think my think my, if, my state election board hat, Greg, real briefly mm-hmm. to, to the professor. He's absolutely right that it was a problem, particularly in Cobb County, uh, where where there were several thousand folks that yep. uh, were not given the ballot time. In fact, the county. Uh, As late as uh, the Friday before election, we're still sending out some of the absentee ballots to people. Uh, And so uh, they had to go to court and and rightly so uh, to open up the time period for folks to return those absentee ballots. But that's that's the sort of thing that we need to fix. Uh, And 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 I 100 percent agree um, that that particularly when it comes to more and more people wanting to vote by by mail, that we need to fix that because there was this delay in not, in getting it out. Some of it by statute, some of it by conduct of the uh, of the of the local election people. But that's the sort of thing that 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 without yeah. that rhetoric we can fix, and that we need to fix desperately so. And I hope you still were able. And that's why I think, professor. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and that's why I think if there is a um, if the the system is preserved, there might be a push to extend the runoff to five weeks, maybe, um, to give a little bit more time for those mail-in ballots and those and, and an extra week for early voting. We'll see. Okay, we have to get to our final break. Stick around, and we'll be right back with more political rewind. And we're back with more political rewind. I'm Greg Bluestein, senior political reporter at the AJC, filling in for the great Bill Naget. Let's jump right back into our discussion with Tammy Greer, Matt Brown, Ed Lindsay, and Fred Smith. And and Fred, uh we, we, we had to cut off for break, but were you able to vote? Did you ever figure out a way?
1: <laughs> I was. So I actually we spent I spent the semester in uh, in New York uh teaching at Columbia. And so when the ballots didn't arrive, yeah, we we had to fly back. Um and in very long lines, et cetera, um, and, and, it just, and it just occurred to me as I was standing in this line that not everyone has that ability and has and have those resources. And the number of college students, and I just, um, I hope we get a handle on just uh, how much of that took place, because um, you know an anecdote is not evidence um, in any meaningful way. And so I hope we get a stronger uh, handle on what happened.
0: I do, too. And I think the data that will be coming out of Secretary of State's office will put all that into finer detail. Um, You know, we mentioned how Senator Warnock is moving forward after the midterms are over. Let's talk about Stacey Abrams, because there's been a number of stories this week uh, under scrutiny for her campaign finances. We know that she had record fundraising for a governor candidate during the midterms, uh, raised more than $103 million. But as Axios first reported, she still owes vendors more than a million dollars. Um, and it's not terribly remarkable for a campaign to still owe its vendors weeks after election. We know of some presidential candidates that still owe their vendors years after an election. But what was more remarkable was the campaign going on the record about it. The campaign manager, Lauren Groh Wargo, and later we've also seen stories um, about, you know, from her former aides. I reported in the AJC, a number of her former aides were frustrated at what they called lavish spending on, you know, luxuries. Um a hype house for TikTok videos, cutting off um, cutting off TV ad spending while spending money on on other issues, uh, overspending in their view on polling and on consultants who didn't take as much action as they wanted. All those issues, Matt. Uh, this tells this shows you that Stacey Abrams is is still a very polarizing personality because just as many people were going out there, you know, defending her actions too. Um, this is going to continue to dog her if she does want to run for office in Georgia again, but she's also such a powerful name brand. Uh, What struck me was that so few Democrats were willing to go on the record uh, to say bad things about her.
2: Right. And I think that this is all part of also a broader reckoning that you're seeing inside of the Georgia Democratic Party more broadly over what is the direction of the party, what is the strategy of the party. And over the past, um, Four years, definitely, maybe even longer. Stacey Abrams has been an integral figure in the party. She she has not just um, a, a intense loyalty here in Georgia, but national celebrity even um, as a voting rights advocate and and as a and as an advocate of um, democratic um, policies and politics. So I, I think that this reckoning over her campaign and how she could have raised so much money and how it could not have been efficiently spent to um, really. Um, Show what her campaign could have done, I think, is making people grapple not just with the personality of Stacey Abrams, but also just how Democrats organize in the state more broadly. Like, like I've heard from a lot of different organizing, progressive organizing groups, voting rights advocates who said, you know, if we'd had one one hundredth of the money that Stacey Abrams has had, we, we could have hired a hundred more people on the ground to stump in communities and whatnot. And I know that um, different Republican campaigns across the state basically told me that, that they don't expect anymore to raise as much money ever as Raphael Warnock and Stacey Abrams did, but that they don't think that they need to to win. Um, That's really the question of not just, okay, we can raise over $100 billion and whatnot, but if you're spending it on a TikTok hype house, is that actually going to go and convince voters in the communities that you need, that you are there for them and that that you support them? That's the question that I think Democrats are really going to be grappling with over the next two years, really, in the run-up to 2024. Like, How do we create a persuasion and turnout machine that actually works for us, and and Mm -hmm. how did we have all this money and it didn't come up for basically anything except for Warnock's
1: win?
0: Yeah, Professor Greer, you know, this has been a debate within the Democratic world here in Georgia since at least 2018 where Stacey Abrams was spending her campaign cash at a far higher rate than than other statewide contenders from either party, but she said, "Look, it takes that kind of money to build the infrastructure that she wanted to build to turn out lower propensity irregular voters who often skip midterm elections."
3: So, it, by your article, which was um great, um it doesn't appear to be that that money was used in the manner to which you know the campaign and even the candidate said that they were going to use the money. So um, if all of this money is raised um, in however period of time, where was the ground gain? If we're using, if the money was being used for you know the Hype House or for a swag truck, where is the ground gain to, to the to the earlier discussion to have you know voter education to say here are the rules of the game when it comes to to voting um, uh, for the general election where was all of these mechanisms and even anecdotally um, to see um, um, Instagram videos and whatnot where you know you have voters saying where is this? Where's the the the, the non paid events that the voters can attend? Where um are the interactions with the candidates? Um if other candidates um had the amount of money that um Stacey Abrams had, could there been um an, another runoff in another election? You had um uh, Charlie Bailey who, you know, got more votes than Stacey Abrams did. You had Jen Jordan who had more votes than Stacey Abrams did. And they didn't have anywhere near that amount of money. So it's very interesting to me how the Democratic Party in Georgia starts to use their um, this fanfare that they're receiving from the country, all eyes are on Georgia, not only in the United States, around the world. How are they using, you know, this limelight, the 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 funding? Um, in order to create a strategy to continue with the notion of Georgia being a competitive state. So it would be very interesting to me to see how they're able to move forward, if they're able to move forward, particularly if the DNC comes here for 2024 and how does Georgia perform um, uh, in 2024, what do they do?
0: Professor Smith, that's a great point. And I heard so many, I heard from so many Democrats, you know, take, take, take Republicans out of the conversation here, but I heard from so many Democrats who were infuriated by Lauren Groh-Wargo, Stacey Abrams' top aide, her tweet thread where she said it was basically, well, she said it was nearly impossible for Stacey Abrams to win in the first place. Um, Meanwhile, we see Senator Warnock prevailing over, yes, a flawed candidate, but still he prevailed over Republican Herschel Walker in that Senate contest
1: yeah you know, and uh it's not uncommon for there to be this kind of finger pointing after a loss, especially a loss of this magnitude and uh and so it's not entirely uh unexpected and uh hopefully in the end, there'll be some consensus about uh, about what needs to happen in terms of uh in terms of the way forward um but yes uh the finger pointing is in is in full effect right now.
0: And I do want to know your your take from a Republican perspective because you've you're not only a former lawmaker but you've also served with Stacey Abrams yeah. and know her very well. You served with her for years. State, yeah, I,
4: I have and 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 I consider her a friend. Uh, we disagree on 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 a lot of ideological fronts, but but I consider her a friend. Uh, the fact of the matter is um even with all the money in the world, message does matter. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, as shown by the overall election returns that we had this year, uh, Georgia is a a right-of-center state. We're not a hard-right state, but we're a right-of-center state. And um, and Stacey chose to run a campaign this year that that focused on the progressive element of her party and turning out the progressive element of her party. Rather than trying to move uh, to the middle and pull in more moderate uh, independents or even slightly right-of-center Republicans, that was her focus. That's that, and that's what she said that she wants to try to build here in Georgia, is 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 a progressive base. Uh, by contrast, Senator Warnock uh, ran a a very good, solid campaign. Uh, putting aside uh, the weaknesses of Walker, he ran a damn good campaign that focused on on the Senate reaching out to, to moderates, reaching out to Republicans, making sure that they're comfortable, showing that he is in the tradition of a Sam Nunn or a Johnny Isaacson, a bring-home-the-bacon kind of senator who can get things done in Georgia. That was the kind of message that a lot of folks want to hear uh, from their, uh, from their uh, elected officials, whether they be a senator or a governor. And he ran the kind of campaign that traditionally works well in Georgia, uh, which is not necessarily a strong ideological campaign, but is a nuts and bolts, uh, bread and butter, uh, who can get the job done for me around mm-hmm. my breakfast room table. And, and so he ran it, and, and I think that was the difference. Uh, between Warnock and and,
0: and Professor Smith, we'll give you the last word. We're going to wrap it up. What's your take?
1: Well, I, well, I just want to say that if you ask uh, people in polls, do you think Stacey is a strong leader? Do you think that she's honest, et cetera? She still polls polls relatively well, which suggests that a big part of this was actually just that she was going against an incumbent who also polled very well on those same questions. Uh, and 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 so I don't want to lose sight of that. Maybe she could have made it closer. Uh, But it's really difficult to imagine uh, how she could have beat uh, Brian Kemp given his level uh, of popularity. He's just not the same person he was four years ago.
0: And you get the final word, Professor Smith. That is all the time we have for Political Rewind today. I'd like to thank our guests, Ed Lindsay, Tammy Greer, Matt Brown, and Fred Smith. I'd also love to thank our producers, Natalie Mendenhall, Chase McGee, and engineer Jake Cook. I'm Greg Bluestein. Thanks for joining us today and come back tomorrow for Political Rewind's last live episode of the year. Thank you.